Well, according to the Old Testament, the prophets Isaiah and Malachi, before Messiah could come, there had to be a, a forerunner, a messenger, uh, one who would come and prepare the people because uh, they were going to get the kingdom of God up close and personal in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we've seen so far in the book of Matthew is that Matthew is an apologist for the prophets, basically. He's a defender. It seems as though he is speaking and writing to folks who, who had questions as to the legitimacy of Jesus of Nazareth being Messiah. So he said, well, first I have to tell you that while he, was, uh, he is of the line of Judah, okay, he was born in Bethlehem. He is Jesus of Nazareth because he lived in Galilee, and that's what Isaiah said would happen, that when the kingdom was coming in its, in its redemptive dynamic in a new way, it would start up in Galilee. And so what we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 is that, is that Jesus, according to Matthew, checks all the boxes of the Old Testament. And so we get here to chapter 3, and we see that there's yet another box that needs to be checked that Isaiah and Malachi prophesied that this herald would come. And uh, John the Baptist is he. This is he, verse 3. For this is he. There's no equivocation there. So first, Matthew wants us to understand the person and the role of John the Baptist. So we're going to kind of be journalistic today. We're going to ask questions. Who was he? Okay. What did he do? How did he do it? What was his message? What was his role? And we're going to see that in 12 short verses. First thing that happens is we see that he is God's herald. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. In those days, well, I don't know if you realized it, but at the end of chapter 2 last week, we saw Jesus still in his infancy in Nazareth. Now it's like 30 years later. Matthew doesn't seem, as most of the other gospel writers, don't seem all that interested at all, really, in the way he was raised and where he was and what he did and, and, you know, when did Joseph die? Because later on we see that his mom and his brothers and sisters are there, but Joseph's not. So there's all kinds of, of stories about that, quite frankly. But that's not what Matthew wants us to get. So the next thing in the prophetic checklist is that a forerunner had to come. And so John appears without introduction, without fanfare. If you didn't know Luke's gospel, you wouldn't know that his mom was Elizabeth and that somehow he, Elizabeth and Mary, were related. King James says they were cousins. That's since been understood to probably not be the best translation. We're not exactly sure, but certainly when Elizabeth was pregnant with John, and Mary, pregnant with the Messiah, came in the room. <laughs> the baby in Elizabeth's womb was, was excited. He was already preparing for the Messiah. And so Matthew just says he came preaching. Now, I'm a preacher, okay? So I have to tell you that this word preaching, it's, you ready to learn a little Greek? Kerux. Isn't that just a great word? Kerux. <laughs> And the message is the kerygma, and what I'm doing right now is kerusoing. <laughs> I just made that up. The thing is about that word group that's used here to describe 
John the Baptist that it's never used of anything written. It's always used of the, of the verbally declared message of God. And that's who John the Baptist was. And where is he? He's out in the wilderness of Judea. Now, the wilderness is a desert place where hardly anything will grow, and we have a, a beautiful picture of it. Kind of looks like uh, Southern California, quite frankly. Not that one. <laughs> I'm seeing it. It's right back there on the, oh, there it is. Look at that. That's a, that's a picture of the Judean wilderness, and you can actually see a road down there. And that is probably the valley that those who would go uh, up to Jericho from Jerusalem and back and forth, probably that same route. But he's in the wilderness. And he, he comes announcing, it says, the kingdom of God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, again, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this thing called the kingdom. And I've done it before, and I've done it, uh, probably continue to do it, because it's, it's a subject that's, a lot of ink has been spilt on it, and I just want you to know the general understanding that I have of it. The word kingdom is found, you don't have to keep notes, but 157 times in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is used 67 times, and the kingdom of heaven, as a phrase, is used 32 times, but only by Matthew. And neither of those phrases, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, is found in the Old Testament. However, <clears throat> God's kingdom is understood in the Old Testament. A couple of examples in 2 Chronicles 13. I know you guys read 2 Chronicles before you go to bed, right? It's like, uh, yeah, it'll put you to sleep in some ways. But uh, there was a king named Abijah. And uh, he confronts the king of the north, Jeroboam, because Jeroboam has kind of walked away from Yahweh. And Abijah says to him, and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you? He's talking to the people. And he says, the kingdom of God is already there. The kingdom is there. David is a representative of it. And we know in, in Daniel, in the story of Daniel in the lion's den, they threw Daniel down in the lions, and God shut the mouths of the lions, and Darius, the king, comes and looks and, and says, oh, Daniel, are you alive? He says, yes, I am. My God shut the mouths of the, of the lions and so King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, at least his kingdom, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of David, excuse me, the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. So even a pagan king knew that there was this uh, almighty creator and sustainer who had a kingdom. The psalmist in Psalm 103, 19 puts it this way, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So while the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven isn't found in the Old Testament, the whole idea of what John the Baptist is coming announcing and preaching 
is God's sovereign kingdom, and it's both assumed and it's apparent throughout the Bible. Now, our knowledge of it begins in Genesis 1.1. I believe that God's kingdom has existed as long as God has, because he's always been God, right? Would you agree with that? Be careful what you agree with. Sometimes I'm not right. God's kingdom is the realm of his solemn, sovereign power. Now, I would tell you, I believe that there are different ways that that kingdom is understood, represented, and experienced. I call them different dynamics. Now, I didn't steal that from anybody, I don't think. It's just the way my mind works. And I've shared this with you before. I think that one of the kingdom dynamics is natural law. God is keeping everything happening, okay? All the seasons, gravity, all the mathematical principles, all the principles of chemistry, all the principles of reproduction, all the principles in your body, all those things, your lungs, your heart, the complexity of the eye, it keeps happening because God is in control of that. There's natural law, and you, you can believe it doesn't exist, You can even say it doesn't exist. You can live as though it doesn't exist, but guess what? There are 40 billion cells in my body, and every one of them has a male marker. I can do whatever I want. I can say that I'm a collie. I can say I'm an elephant. But the reality of natural law is that I'm a male. And so there's also the providence dynamic. That is... Ephesians 1 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. That's always been. God sees all things in one eternal moment. And all things, when it is all over, are going to be seen to have worked out exactly as he said they would, to bring him glory. But the one dynamic that is mostly seen and understood and carried along in the biblical story is what I'm going to call the redemptive dynamic. That is, the dynamic of the kingdom of God whereby he is dealing with the sin problem as he promised to do in Genesis chapter 3. When the first gospel proclaimed that someday, someway, somehow, the he, a male child, seed of the woman was going to come and and begin the process and then accomplish the process whereby the corruption of sin would be overcome by the love and grace of God. And that's what we see kind of brought along. We see it in Eden. We see it progressively revealed and experienced through the Bible. And there are specific seasons or specific events where it becomes more understood and more experienced. For instance, when, when Abram was asked to sacrifice Isaac, And he's about to do it, and God says, stop, and there's a ram caught in the thicket that God has provided a substitute. And then later on, when we get the Mosaic Law, we see that instead of everyone uh, giving their firstborn as a sacrifice to God, instead they can substitute it. And then on the Day of Atonement, there's a, a scapegoat that is a substitute for the sins of the people, and it's sent out into the wilderness. And we see this on and on until finally in in John, we see John the, the apostle saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we've seen it progressively displayed and experienced, but with John the Baptist's message, it comes in a more powerful, blatant, radical way than it ever before. 
His message represents this massive explosion of information about the redemptive dynamic of the kingdom. And it's this. This is what John the Baptist is going to say. The redemptive dynamic is coming in the person of Messiah, and he is about to look right in your face. And he's going to walk around amongst you, and his powerful presence and his teaching and his preaching is going to confront you and your hearts and your biases and your religious hypocrisy in a way that you've never understood and never saw. That's what, boy, I'm going to get excited any moment. That's what Matthew is saying, that John came, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. You won't be able to deny it. Well, you can deny it, but you can't ignore it. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to burst on the scene here. He's going to do things that no one else has ever done. And you're either going to have to fall down and repent and entrust your life to him, or you're going to suffer eternal punishment. Talk about an evangelist. He says, you here in Israel are going to be blatantly confronted with the, the personal presence and power of God himself. John the Baptist's message, the redemptive power of God's kingdom is coming in person. In Jesus of Nazareth, God's king, God's Messiah. He's coming right into your life. He's going to get right in your face. And he's going to say, repent and believe and live the life of kingdom citizens, which is what a whole bunch of Matthew's gospel is about. We'll get into the Sermon on the Mount. What's that about? It's about kingdom ethics, kingdom living. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's going to be right in your face. Well, why does Matthew use, I have to, it's one of the things I have to do. I have to tell you why he uses kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. He's the only one who, who does. You're all interested in that, yeah? I have no idea. <laughs> I have several thoughts and theories. Some people say, well, it's because he was a good Jew and he didn't want to say the name of God. You know, if you, if you know the, the Jewish way, they don't ever say the name of God for fear of taking it in vain. But the problem with that explanation is that throughout the book of Matthew, he, he uses the word God all the time. So we really don't know. But we do know that in multiple places in the New Testament, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are understood as synonyms. In fact, in Matthew 19, 23, Matthew quotes Jesus, who said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses both, because he's a good speaker and doesn't want to just keep saying the same thing over time. So it may be that for some reason Matthew's upbringing or his training or his literary style was to use something that other people weren't necessarily used to hearing, maybe, to bring his point across. So John the Baptist, he's Messiah's herald, and he is pronouncing and preaching as the prophets predicted. Look what happens. Verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. As I mentioned before, Matthew's very direct. He says, this is the guy. You're wondering who Isaiah was talking about? This is the guy. 
That's me. I am the voice crying in a wilderness. He gets that from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, the the Hebrew text of Isaiah 40 actually starts with, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So John's being in the wilderness is part of his message. The wilderness becomes kind of the set, the, the movie set, where he is acting out the role that he has been given. And in a way, it's supposed to symbolize Israel's religion, that it's no longer flourishing. It has been devoid of the nourishment, the, the, the waters of life that only are found in, in their God. In John 1, John actually applies this to himself, John the Baptist. A bunch of people came to him, and the priests and the Levites of Jerusalem asked him, this is in John 1, 19, who are you? And He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Messiah, okay? I'm not the guy. Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you a prophet? Nope. They said to him, who are you? And he quotes Isaiah 40, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's come to prepare Israel for the message of Jesus because it is going to, it's radical, He's going to say, you've heard this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard this is what they've taught you, but I say. Now, he doesn't change. He just corrects because they're like a, an old shelf. They have put layers and layers and layers of varnish and paint on the law. And Jesus says, no, this is what the law means. He brings a, John brings a radical message that the religion that's currently being believed and practiced by Israel is fatally flaws flawed. And so he says, make his paths straight. So he says, basically, you guys, these are the straight paths, the paths of righteousness that Psalm 23 talks about, and that's how God is leading, and you're to follow him in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even if it leads you into the valley of the shadow of death. But they had made different paths. They'd taken the paths of, of the Lord, and they said, no, let's go over here for a while. Let's go this way, and let's do this. Let's, let's have a new way of pleasing God that doesn't call upon us uh, to uh, actually have lives that are ethical and moral, uh, morally right. We can just build this facade of legalism and live behind it. And Jesus is going to come, and he's going to point them in the eye, and he's going to say, that's wrong. So as we study Matthew's gospel, we'll see just how much Jesus' message is prefigured in what John says. In fact, in this text that we're looking at, I sure hope we get done with it, don't you? There are seven different things that John says here that Jesus says later. The whole idea of brood of vipers, trying to escape judgment is Jesus. Repentance, producing good fruit, calling people children of Abraham as though that were something that was enough, that fruitless trees will be cut down and burned, that there's going to be judgment, that grain is going to be gathered into the granary, but the chaff is going to be burned. All these themes we're going to find in Jesus. But there's another prophet that we see being used here in verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I know what you're thinking. 
Matthew, we don't care what he dressed like. I really don't care what he ate, right? Isn't that what we're modern? Why are you going to do that? Well, I'll tell you why. But Matthew, having identified John the Baptist as the fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy, now has to deal with what Malachi said. And for you Italians, that's Malachi, the only Italian in the Bible, okay? Because Malachi said this in chapter 3, verse 1, God said, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom I delight Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So they, they understood that before Messiah came, there would be someone coming first. In fact, Malachi goes on in chapter 4, verse 5 to say, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now remember, by the time uh, Malachi wrote, Elijah was already had been carried to heaven in, in a whirlwind. So this is somebody who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Well, who was that? Well, John does his best to show up like Elijah. He, he's got clothing made out of camel hair, okay, which was a, a cheap way to have clothing that the poor and the simple and the austere of that day would have in great contrast to the silken robes and all of the finery of the religious elite in Jerusalem. You see, we, we have a thing here at Grace Baptist in our communications department that says everything speaks. That means the way we do sound tells something about us. We want to do things in excellence. Uh, the way we talk, the way our building is, the way we take care of our trees. We have two guys who work on our trees and our bushes and our lawn and keep them really nice. Why? Because... We think God has given us this, and we ought to really stewards it. Everything speaks. In John the Baptist's case, everything preaches. Okay? His clothes made out of camel's hair and a leather belt to cinch him up. Look what it says in 2 Kings. Well, you don't have to look. I'll tell you. In 2 Kings, we have this situation where uh, one of the kings of Israel is going to go to the god of Ekron, Beelzebul and beseech him for help and he sends some messengers down there to get this idolatrous, this pagan God to uh, be favorable to him who's a, an Israelite. And so God says to Elijah, hey, go down there and tell the guy that's a bad choice. So he does. And his messengers come back and they go to the king and he says, why, why'd you come back? And they said, well, this, this guy came to us and told us that if we continued to go this way, we would die. So we thought, eh, we won't go. And the king said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. A, a, an exact quote here that we see in verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. So what's he doing? Well, he is being Elijah. In fact, later Jesus will say to his disciples, the guy who came to prepare the way was John the Baptist. And then his diet and his food was locusts and wild honey. I think we have a picture of that. There they are. Aren't those beautiful? We have some recipes uh, for that. It's interesting that in the law, in the Levitical law, there were four insects that you could eat. Right? 
You want to know what they are? I'll tell you. The locusts of any kind, the bald locusts, I love those, they're my favorite, (laughs) the cricket of any kind and the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Now, I did a little research, and I found out that there are those who believe that, quote, this insect was highly prized as nourishment, either in water and salt like our prawns, or dried in the sun and preserved in honey and vinegar, or, here's my favorite, powdered and mixed with wheat flour into a pancake. So I'm going to try to talk Thelma's into having locust pancakes and just see. Well, what are we talking about here in wild honey? John's dress and his diet were stuff of simplicity, of austerity, in very great contrast to the finery and the convenience and the comfort religiously of the people in in Jerusalem. So he dressed and preached a different way of life that the coming of Messiah would bring. Well, how did he do it? Well, I don't know, but he, I better do it fast, right? Verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Now, Matthew's using hyperbole, just like he did back in chapter 2 when the wise men came to Jerusalem and it said Herod was really upset and all Jerusalem with him. He's not saying that everyone, including all the Roman soldiers in Judea, went out to see John. He just said that he drew such a crowd. The power of his message, the distinctiveness of his message and his, and his Elijah-esque persona he was probably 20 miles from Jerusalem, and they, may, and they would go out, spend a while to get there and spend time there. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. We have a picture of that. We're not sure exactly where he was baptizing, but just to give you an idea of what was going on, out in the wilderness, the Jordan River, he found probably a pool, a bend, and people were coming, and he was baptizing them. Now, baptism was certainly something that was well-known, but usually just in terms of ceremonial cleansing. It was done over and over and over. When you went into the temple, there were a mikvah, and you'd walk through that every time you went in. And if you were in Qumran, you did it before every meal. But John's baptism was distinctively Christian. By that, I mean it's a one-time event. We don't baptize people over and over and over because it is a picture of identification with an organization, with an ideology, in this case, with John's message. And what was his message? Repent. Repent. Turn from your ways. Confess your sins. And we see that message in verse 7, and he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, and he said to them, this this is a great way to win friends and influence people. You brood of vipers. Now, uh, we don't have to assume that they necessarily came to be baptized, but obviously they were given the impression that, yeah, we're here, and and we want to be part of this. One of the hardest things in ministry for me is to measure repentance. But this is what I know. The prodigal son is my, is my metric. He's in with the pigs. He comes to his senses. He realizes that what he did was wrong. 
regardless of what other circumstances drove him to do it, regardless of how his dad treated him or his brother, whatever, doesn't mention it. He says, I have sinned. I'm going back to my dad, and I'm just wanting relationship. I'm, I'm ready to be his servant. I don't even need to be a son. I don't deserve to be a son. So to me, repentance is when you realize what you've done is so wrong before the face of God, and all you want is to be forgiven and to be restored in relationship. You may never have the privileges you had before because there are some sins, like David's, that have consequences that reconciliation doesn't do away with. And so what we see is John looking at these Pharisees and Sadducees and saying, you guys, you know, well, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, who, who shot an, an arrow of truth so deeply into your heart and conscience that you have awakened to the reality that you will face God's judgment and not his acceptance when the day of reckoning comes? And has it really scared you to the place where you are willing to come here and humble yourself and be baptized? And he's saying, I don't think so. You guys are just looking for another merit badge. You're just trying to look like you're doing well. He says, here's the, here's the fruit that is required. He said, before I accept that you are truly repentant, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, when we repent of our sins, we turn from it. We turn from the pride that kept us in it. We turn from the rationalizing that allows, it to minimize it, allows us to minimize it. We turn from the anger at what's been done to us. And we repent before the Lord and we say, I'm not fit, but Lord, I believe your promise that you will work in my life to make me more like Jesus. True repentance will manifest itself in our lives, not merely on our lips. And then he says, he asked a question and then he warned them, and now he gives them the obstacle that is probably keeping them from the repentance in verse 9. And don't presume to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Man, talk about a feisty guy. He's talking to the elite of the Jewish nation who, we are Jews. We're not dogs like the Gentiles. We are sons of Abraham. So John here is proclaiming a very persistent theme in Jesus' ministry that mere ethnicity has never guaranteed a right relationship with God. God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. Now, Paul tells us in Romans 3, and I'm sure you remember when I brilliantly exposed that cha chapter, uh, there, is great, there is great benefit in being Jewish. To them are the fathers, to them is the Old Testament, to them are the promises. And yet redemption from depravity and confession and, and forgiveness of sins has always been by the grace of God through faith in God's promise to justify the ungodly through the redemptive accomplishments of Jesus Christ. You know, in our day, it's not so much that we would say, oh, I'm Jewish, although my brother thinks we are. We have a different way of saying it. Well, I'm Christian. You know, I was baptized in this and I... I've been going to church, and I, I give some money, and I go on a mission trip. But notice the reality here. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. 
He's saying judgment is coming. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, not just any fruit, but good fruit, the kind of fruit God says comes from faith, comes from a transformed heart, comes as evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and well and unrestricted in your life. And my life, I told you last week that I was just ticked off about everything. Somebody was nice enough to bring that up and asked how I'm doing. I'm better. I read the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do when the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in our lives? Do we just say, well, they, I must be okay. I, I went forward, I signed a card, I did this, I gave my life... When Martin Luther tacked the 95 Theses on whatever church door, Wittenberg, supposedly, the very first one says, Jesus said the life to repent was a lifetime of repentance. A lifetime of repentance. Never getting to the place where regardless of our position, how many verses we've memorized, what our degrees are, of being able to look in the mirror of God's word and say, you know what, I, I don't measure up even to my standards. I need, to, I need to take myself into a closet and beat myself up and then realize that the grace of God has healed me and I'm forgiven and I'm loved, so I ought to start living like it. And so John previews a significant illustration that Jesus will use many, many times, this idea of a tree. The promise also goes even further when he says God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. He is, he is previewing what we've already seen in Matthew, that at some point the message of covenant blessing inside Jesus Christ is going to be expanded to the nations. And then he says, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. He tells us what his baptism's about. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I. So he says, I'm the forerunner. I'm the, I'm the Kerux who is preparing the way for the one who's coming. And just so you know, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals. Now, you've got to understand in the Jewish household, when the man of the house came home, the job of taking off his sandals and maybe washing his feet was considered to be beneath the dignity of any Jew that only a foreign servant could do it. And so what is John saying? He says, you know, you know that most menial task? I'm not even able to do that in comparison to who Messiah is. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, and I would take out the word and because uh, there's one preposition that governs both. It's almost like he's saying spirit fire, and I'm not exactly sure what that is, but we do see it in Acts 2 when the spirit comes and as of rushing wind and tongues as of fire, right? Pentecost. John's saying, whatever you think of me, I'm not the one. I'm here to tell you he's coming and give you a preview of his message. And you know how the, how the job of taking off sandals is, is menial. I'm not even that good. Please, don't bow down before me. But secondly, not only is he coming, 
He's bringing a winnowing fork. You know, when they, in the, that day, they'd put all their grain in a pile and they would th- throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away and the tool they used was a winnowing fork. Messiah is coming and he's coming to Jerusalem and he's coming to the world and he is going to throw the chaff up. He'll clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, unquenchable fire. Jesus comes. He's still coming. As great as the incarnation was, as this dramatic explosion of information and and the experience of the redemptive dynamic with the Savior right here, there's coming an even greater one. At the end of his time on earth, he rode into Jerusalem humble on a donkey. Well, the truth is, he's coming back, and this time, not as a servant, right, as a sovereign. So what do we learn from this? Well, here's what I've learned, and I, I hope you can learn as well perhaps in different ways, but what I find here is that God uses human instruments like us to know and live out his truth. Everything about us should preach. Everything about us testifies. Our choices, our words. Number two, John came to prepare the hearts to make the paths of God straight. And as I was reading this and writing it and thinking about it, I thought, well, what? What paths in my life have I kind of taken off my own way? It's a good question to ask, dear ones. It's better to look at our own lives than to figure out how everybody else should live. And then thirdly, the message of Jesus is not flexible. And the question is, are our hearts and minds and lives and our lips, are they shaped by the reality that all those who've refused to entrust their lives to Jesus are headed for a horrible situation. Everybody we see either has Jesus or needs him. The easy thing is to turn away from those in our lives who don't follow our ideology, to somehow figure out ways to be separate from them. But we are plan A of the gospel. So I leave you with that. Sorry I ran out of time. Sorry, I ran out of your time. I still have lots of time. I'm going to do part two next service. No, kidding. But I want to give you a moment. Uh, I've been pretty wrapped up in this, and I hope that my passion hasn't overridden what the Spirit wants to do in your life. So take, take a minute and reflect and do what you think the Spirit of God is asking you to do and be. And for most all of us, there's also a time to thank Him that he has revealed himself to us in a saving way. Let's pray.